0: Good morning. We're returning to our sermon series in the Gospel of John. Uh, Previously, we had left off in John chapter 10, Jesus um, as the Good Shepherd. Today, uh, we kind of have the perfect Sunday after Easter passage, chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We read that now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured out perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent words to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, "The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could he not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was, a, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. In the King James Version, it says, It stinketh. (laughs) It stinketh, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. A very familiar, fantastic passage from the scriptures. Here's how we're going to tackle it. First off, I want to begin by looking at the story from the perspective of the sisters. Um, Secondly, then we'll go on and do the same and look at the story from Jesus' perspective. And then kind of throughout, what I hope to do is intersperse some reflections on facing death and expressing empathy with those who are suffering. Then at the very end, uh, we'll conclude, fittingly enough, with resurrection hope. But first, the the perspective of the sisters— When the story begins, um, Mary and Martha send a messenger to Jesus who is expected to deliver this message. A Lord, your friend whom you love is really sick. And implied in the message is, of course, a request. You're going to come and heal him, right? You're going to come and heal him. And Jesus had already healed a lot of people during his ministry. So surely he's going to do the same for someone he loves so much. He'll want to come and heal this his dear friend, and they're probably thinking along the lines of he'll want to come and do it, do it personally and directly. Well, Jesus receives the messenger, and he hears the message, but then you know something surprising happens. He doesn't go to Bethany; rather, he stays where he is for several more days. And you notice significantly in the passage, he doesn't even send a return message to the sisters which he could have easily done because the messenger was right there and, and available to him. Now this is speculation, but I think it's easy to imagine once the messenger returns to Mary and Martha with no word from Jesus, they must have been like, what? what? He didn't say he was going to come? What? He didn't say anything? He didn't send any word at all? And the messenger might have replied, well, he did say that this sickness was not going to end in death. And that might have been some comfort to them because they knew Jesus, uh, Jesus had demonstrated the fact that he didn't have to be physically present in order to heal someone. So they are probably thinking, well, Lazarus' condition is worsening, but surely like any minute now, any minute now, he's going to just speak the word and Lazarus is going to get better. Again, speculation, but perhaps the sisters watch their brother slip into night terrors as he's burning up in fever. Perhaps, you know, he goes into a coma. But in the morning, Lazarus dies. And not only then have they lost their their dearly beloved brother, but they had to have been having nagging questions run through their minds. Like, did Jesus really love Lazarus? And does he really love us? Which, if you think about it, are the exact same kind of questions that we ask when something terrible happens to us. Does he really love us? Um, they must have been, been absolutely gutted and confused. Now, what I want you to watch next is how Mary and Martha process their pain quite differently. When Jesus finally comes to Bethany, it's only Martha who goes out to greet him and she says this. She says, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died." Some people reading this think that's a tremendous statement of faith, like you could have you could have uh, healed him. But to me, it really does sound like an accusation. Like, if you, why weren't you here? Why didn't you come? Why didn't you do anything? The dialogue continues. And Jesus eventually makes the great I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha replies, well, I believe that you are the Messiah who's come into the world. And, and again, it sounds like a strong statement of faith until only a few minutes later when he says, okay, remove the stone from the tomb. And she says, yeah, and it's going to stink. You know, what are you doing? She, yeah, yeah, I believe you're the Messiah, but I don't really believe that, that you can do this. I mean, he's been in the tomb for four days. So what can we conclude about Martha? Well, I think Martha is a lot like us. I mean, she's a woman who believes. I mean, she's a, you know, she has some of her theology down pat. She says, you know, I believe that there's going to be a resurrection at the end of time. Um, you know, a resurrection of righteous Jews on the last day. She kind of gets part of it right. She she knows the right words to say, but at the same time, she's this jumble of like faith and doubt, of faith and and pain that is mixed with doubt. That really doesn't know um, how how to exactly trust Jesus in it. Mary processes her pain quite differently. You notice that she's withdrawn. She stays at the home with the other mourners and she doesn't go out to meet Jesus when he arrives, which surely would have been uncustomary for her. <clears throat> maybe it's her way to protect herself from being hurt more, or maybe she wants to communicate this, something to Jesus by her absence. But when she finally goes out to meet him, all she has to say to him is this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she falls at his feet and she weeps at his feet. There's a Polish pastor by the name of Bagumil Jarmulak. Forgive my lack of <laughs> Polish pronunciation. Who uh, he preached a sermon um, on on the raising of Lazarus, looking at the perspective of the sisters. And so far, I've been really drawing from his work. He makes a pretty compelling case that John chapter 11 is not about Lazarus. It's really a story about Mary. And the reason we know this, or what he points out, is that at the very beginning of the chapter, remember, Mary is highlighted as the one, as the woman who anoints Jesus' feet um, uh, with oil and and washes his feet with her hair. Well, then at the end of chapter 11, we go into chapter 12. And what is the very next story that chapter 12 begins with? The story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. Um, And if you remember that story, where do you find Mary? You find her weeping at Jesus' feet. She's doing the exact same thing she was doing here in chapter 11, weeping at Jesus' feet. Only what has happened? The tears have changed. No longer are they the tears of heartbreak and pain; they are the tears of adoration. She's received her brother back. Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and even more than that, I think she has been reconciled to Jesus. And there she is at Jesus' feet, where she, at his feet, she realizes Jesus didn't fail me. He didn't fail. If anything, you know I failed him, but he is faithful. So I just wonder, have you ever, I know it's such a familiar story, right? You, you probably read John 11 many, many times. But have you read it from that perspective, from the perspective of, of the sisters? Because they really are representative of, of what, how we feel when we go through periods of intense suffering. Um, there's two things that they grapple with in the passage that you and I struggle to grapple with. The silence of God and the delay of God. You know, the silence of God, why isn't he saying something to us? Or they get a message that this is not going to end in death, but nevertheless, they misinterpret that message and they don't reach the right conclusions. Um, But Jesus doesn't send an additional word back, the silence of God, and then the delay of God. You know, he takes them right up to the end, right up to the point where it seems like there's no conceivable way he can fix this um, until... Voila, (laughs) he does. And they experience something what we would simply call serendipity. They discover something entirely different than what they were looking for. Um, They discover the resurrection and the life in the place of death. Um, And and you know, as they say, you'll never fully believe that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. A lot more could be said about this sister's perspective. But let's look at Jesus' perspective. To do so, we don't have to speculate nearly as much because there are two emotions. We're kind of told exactly how Jesus is feeling. It's a rare passage insofar as it gives us a, a pretty uh, comprehensive look into Jesus' you know, emotional life. Verse 33 is the first example of this. Most translations miss the thrust of verse 33. My translation that I just read from does. It says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Which sounds like, ah, he was maybe a little bit bothered. But that same word in classical Greek is used to depict a war horse on the field of battle snorting with fury about to charge into battle against the enemy? I mean, it's depicting like, intense high-level anger that he felt. What was he so angry about? You know, biologists tell us that death is the most natural thing in the world. I mean, death is in fact enshrined in, you know, eons and eons of paleontology on the planet. Um, death just happens, things die, people die, the law of the jungle, kill or be killed, nothing could be more natural than, than death. But don't you realize when you say that, to say, oh, death is just natural, that really hardens and perhaps kills a part of your heart's hope that makes you truly human. Because we know deep down inside that we are not like the trees, and we are not like grass, we were created to last. And we don't want to be ephemeral. We don't want to be inconsequential. We don't want to be just a wave upon the sand. The deepest desires of our hearts are for a human life and human love and for that to, to go on and on, to last. If you are a Christian, um, you've heard this before, but if you're not, it's a great time to hear it again, uh, to hear it for the very first time. Death is not the way that it ought to be. Death is abnormal, according to the Bible. Death is not a friend. Death is not right. Death is not truly part of the circle of life, at least not part of the human um, circle of life. And what's so cool about this story do you want to know how Jesus feels about death? It sounds like it sounds like this. It's what comes out of you vocally when you cannot put into words how upset you are. Like he's bellowing in rage. And he's not upset with Mary and Martha and he's not upset with the Jews that are weeping. He is upset with Satan and sin and death and what his good creation has become. And and, and so, what I hope is for the rest of your life, when you read uh, John 11, you'll hear that that because he's so upset. The second emotion Jesus feels is found in verse 35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, in the entire Bible. Two words: Jesus wept. Uh, We men probably imagine him uh, imagine his eyes watering a little bit because that's how dudes cry. But again, the Greek word here suggests something entirely differently. It suggests that he was crying profusely. It's a a kind of crying where your chest heaves the same way it heaves in laughter. Um, It's the crying um, that what us guys, we do that maybe once a year, (laughs) maybe once a decade. But I want you to get in your mind this mental image of Jesus absolutely breaking down Uh, in tears. Why? Because death is the great interruption. It tears loved ones away from us and us from them. Death is the great schism. It rips apart the material and immaterial parts of our being and sunders a whole person who was never meant to be disembodied, even for a moment. Death is the great insult because it reminds us, as Shakespeare said, that we are worm food Death is hideous and frightening and cruel and unusual. It is not the way life is supposed to be. And our, our grief in the face of death, it acknowledges that. Like We really ought to listen to ourselves at, at funerals. Our grief acknowledges all of that. There's a word I want to throw out to you that is uh, applicable to this scene. It's us. Uh, I heard another guy talk about this. It's the word triumphalism. Any idea what triumphalism um, triumphalism means? I looked it up in a dictionary, and triumphalism is described as an arrogant confidence in a set of beliefs or uh, arrogant confidence in anticipated actions. And what that can look like in Christian circles, it, it's like, hey, uh, Romans eight twenty eight. Isn't Romans 8.28 true? I mean, doesn't God work all things together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes? Like, if yes, if you know it's true, buck up. <laughs> you know, what tri- triumphalism can look like in the hands of a well-meaning Christian is, is kind of like they have a giant rubber Romans 8.28 stamp, and you come to a friend who's going through divorce, and you just stamp it. Uh, you come to someone who's lost their job, and you just stamp it. And by stamping it, we, we don't really have to wade into the sadness and feel it. We could do the exact same thing with like a, a glib Easter stamp. You come to somebody who's lost a loved one, and, you know, Jesus, isn't he the resurrection of life, and you just, just stamp it. What well, was so cool last week, the Veritas Forum, which is, um, they do a lot of, Presentations on college campuses, uh, speaker forum. Well, they did an online discussion among several different artists. Lecrae was one of them, and um, Mako Fujimura was another one, a Christian artist, and a couple of other people. But it was you know, it was on coronavirus, and it was entitled um, "Lament, Hope, and Creativity." You know, during these dark days. And at one point, Fujimura. He comments, on John, uh, he comments on John 11, 35, Jesus wept. And he says, you know, those two words make no rational sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, all, the, he, all Jesus had to do was take Mary by the hand and bring her to the tomb and just say, hey, Mary, watch this, presto. Like, and then he could, have, he could have given her a gentle rebuke afterwards. Mary, you know, ye of little faith, you, know, you should have trusted me. You, you know that I am here to show you the power of God. But instead, the Logos, the Word of God, the Word who is with the Father from the beginning, the Word of God takes Mary by the hand and he, he cries with her. He shares in her suffering. And he does it because he thought that was impo- an important thing to do. And when we stamp things, when we take out the rubber stamp, we don't really have to wade into the sadness or the anger and really feel them. But that's not the example that Jesus left us with. I mean, it's incredible. He doesn't walk up. He could have walked up and said, hey, I know you're totally sad, but this is gonna be awesome. (laughs) You are, I know you are about to be happier than you are sad. So buckle up, folks. And all you people who are crying, you ought to go out and get drinks because this is going to be the biggest celebration this town has ever seen. Even when we know, even when we know that Jesus is going to raise the dead, and he will, nevertheless, like, this is how we're supposed to enter into the sadness of life, particularly the sadness of death. We're to feel it fully as he did. Okay, moving on. One of the great exercises in biblical imagination is for us to picture Lazarus coming alive and, and walking out of the tomb. So if you look at the front of your bulletin, I included, this is an old Eastern Orthodox um, uh, image of Jesus and Lazarus. You notice how Lazarus is wrapped up very tightly. We know something about Jewish burial practices because at the very end of the gospel, you know, the women go to the, to the tomb you know, on on Easter Sunday with spices and, and other linen. They were going to wrap up Jesus' body with, you know, who knows, 50, 75 pounds of spices and new linen. You know, Jesus died on Good Friday, and he was hastily wrapped up because, you know, the Jewish Sabbath was quickly approaching. So they, they didn't do a full like, burial wrapping for him, but that's why the women were there. And surely that's how they they bound up Lazarus. I mean, he looked something, maybe something like this, something like a mummy. Why wouldn't he suffocate when he came back to life if he was wrapped up like a mummy? And, And the answer is, you know, there was a, they would usually tie like a grave cloth around the top of the head to keep the jaw from coming dislodged. But then they would lay over the eyes and the nose and the mouth just Just a facial covering. So I can almost imagine, it's fun to use our imaginations, isn't it? Lazarus laying there, and all of a sudden, the breath of God, it comes into his lungs. And he can't move. Like, he's totally um, rigor mortis, I mean, in these grave clothes. But all he can do is, he has breath in his lungs, and he can blow the grave cloth off of his face. And I think we're supposed to imagine these things. And we're to imagine him like an earthworm, you know, inching his body ever so slowly to the edge of the stone, pedestal that he was laid on, uh, trying his best to plop his feet onto the ground. And wouldn't it just wouldn't have been so wonderfully comical to watch this man in grave clothes bunny hop out the front of this grave to the watching eyes of, of everyone there? Down throughout the centuries, um, many Christians have looked at Lazarus' resurrection as as a picture of our spiritual rebirth. Um, It's it's the picture of what it's like to be saved by Jesus. Like when we're born again, when we're saved, um, the breath of God comes into us. We receive the Holy Spirit. But like Lazarus, we're still kind of bound up in our old grave clothes. We're, we're partially restricted by the old sinful patterns of thought and behavior that we've had all of our life. And so people, when they become Christians, it's a little confusing. You think, well, um, they just become a perfectly new person. And, and they do in a sense, but they, they don't become perfect new persons. They are, they're still bound up in these, these old things um, They're still bound up in their grave clothes. We wish we could burst out of the tomb with our new resurrected life and run a hundred meter dash ahead of Usain Bolt. But that rarely happens because we have to just progressively begin to unwrap ourselves, to live and act according to the spirit, according to the spirit's mind and his desires, his thoughts, his emotions and behaviors, and not our old self, not the old grave clothes. There are many other things we'd like to learn about Lazarus. We, you know, love to interview him afterwards. Wish that John would have interviewed him afterwards. You know, what was it like to die and go into the grave? Um, What was it like to go to Sheol, talking about last week? Uh, How did it feel to be resurrected? What is that like? And what what did Lazarus go on to tell other people about this experience? John will have none of it. You know, his purpose is not to satisfy our inquiring minds. His purpose is to focus our attention on Jesus and on the words of Jesus. Uh, Lazarus, come out! It's the shout of raw authority. I love how the old commentator Matthew Henry, he says uh, says that if Jesus had not specified Lazarus in this command, all the graves would have burst open and given up their dead. Amen. Like in that moment, Jesus shows us who he is. He shows that he is the author and spring of all resurrection. He tells us the, the fountain of resurrection is in my hand. It is in my voice. It is in my voice that my voice shall call forth all the sleeping dust of all my saints. And in my hand, they, sh- they shall be gathered and fashioned into Uh, A body, a glorious body like his resurrected body. He says, all of resurrection life is mine. The Jews like Martha believed, as I said earlier, there would be a resurrection of the righteous on the last day. But what Jesus does is he takes that Jewish hope and he ties it to himself. He takes their understanding of resurrection, of that future hope, and he ties it to himself when he says, I am I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, you will never die. And even if you die, you will always live forever in the presence of God, never to be subject to death again. That's good news. (laughs) In conclusion, Tim Keller recently, like at the beginning of March, released a new book entitled On Death. It's a very short little paperback. It explores Western culture's aversion to death and the Christian's hope in the face of, je- uh, face of death. You know, Jesus is not the preservation of the life. He calls himself the resurrection and the life, which means that we must die. We, we must die, but this loss will not end in death. In all loss, we have hope. And so uh, I'll just leave you with this quote from Keller. Actually, several of the cooler things I had to say about death earlier in the sermon, I was actually quoting this book um, on death. Christians have a hope, I love this, Christians have a hope that can be rubbed into our sorrow and anger the way salt is rubbed into meat. Neither stifling our grief nor giving away to, to, to despair, neither of those is correct, neither repressing our anger nor letting our, our souls just go along with unchecked rage. That's not good for us. But pre- by pressing hope into your grief and pressing hope into your anger, do you know what happens? It makes you wise. It makes you compassionate. It makes you humble and tender-hearted. We are to fully grieve all death, yet we always grieve with this profound hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you conquer death and open the gates of life everlasting. In the power of the Holy Spirit, raise us up that we may proclaim your hope and peace to all people And that you and the Father would be glorified. And everyone may know that the Father has sent you into this world to bring resurrection and life. Help us to be uh, empathetic, wise, humble, gracious, tender-hearted with those who are suffering. Um, And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.